Off the ball. GAA. This was a strike in a form box. Yeah. This ball was barely in his hand and he's able to get this, this strike away. You don't get a chance to look at the post. Off the ball. Join in the obsession. Subscribe now at offtheball.com forward slash join. Off the ball. Breakfast. Ireland's sports breakfast show. The impact that Brexit is having on football uh, is something that we're fairly familiar here with in the Republic of Ireland. But obviously, what impact is it having on football in the UK and particularly with the WSL? I'm delighted to say Jesse Parker Humphreys is with us, uh, writing recently about this in The Athletic and also podcasting with Counterpressed. Jesse, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, so in Ireland, the impact that Brexit is having, it means that our, our young kids aren't going over the way they would have done previously and they can't go over until they're 18. From the league's perspective, though, you've been writing this week about the impact that it's had on the WSL, for example, and their ability to bolster the ranks of their talents. Can you explain a bit of the intricacies of this uh, for people who are coming to it um, at the start in terms of the process? And then we'll talk about the impact. Yeah, basically, as a result of Brexit, football, like a number of professions now, has to show that people who are coming to the the country from, you know, all over the world, but obviously including Europe and the European Union, um, fulfill a number of criteria. And so the FA, in conjunction with the Home Office, have brought in a point scheme which looks at things like the quality of the domestic league a player plays in, the number of minutes they play there, the percentage of their international minutes they play, and how good their international team is. Um, It's quite a complicated system, which I think is part of the reason it's got quite a few flaws. And specifically within women's football, I think there are a number of different issues popping up, which are both to do with how we assess the quality of things like your international team and your domestic league, and also the resources that WSL teams have available to them to manoeuvre themselves through this system in order to bring players through to England and the WSL. So that, that's multi-part. The, the first part is the, trying to assess the quality of the league and the international team. Is there no shorthand in terms of European coefficients and world rankings that is an off-the-shelf solution to that? Yeah, there, there are. they use world rankings specifically for sort of international team, team quality. Um, domestic leagues, it's a little bit more opaque There are obviously sort of links to European coefficients. But for example, we saw this season um, the Dutch League, which hadn't previously been sort of ranked as the in the first or second groupings of leagues, went all the way to the top, despite the fact that, you know, we haven't necessarily seen Dutch teams significantly do well in in Europe actually until this season. Um, And then also sort of more broadly, it's maybe a little bit less around Europe that this they really run into this problem. But there's a feeling that sort of the assessment of specifically nations in Africa and Asia are weighted potentially a bit unfairly compared to um, sort of European neighbours. OK. And then the uh, second part is the, the quality of the uh, individual players themselves and, and how to uh, how to rank them. And essentially civil servants have to do this to give the clubs the go-ahead. The second part is obviously navigating the system from a legal perspective, but uh, the civil servants have to come up with a a format that says these players are capable of contributing to our league at a level that's better than what's already available. And uh, maybe that's not their uh, necessary job qualification. 
Yeah, and I think also the the problem is is you know especially when we're talking about scouting a lot of the time, as, as you look at younger age groups, you're talking about potential. And you're not talking about a tick box exercise. And to try and get around this, um, they did bring in this year a, a youth exceptions panel, um, which means that clubs can take players who were born after a a certain date after. 2004, I believe, um, to to this panel, and they can be looked at sort of separate from these these points, which they just won't necessarily have have attained at that age. The problem that women's football specifically has with this is that costs money, and whereas a men's team would probably happily put a couple of thousand pounds on a prospect that they see as being worth millions of pounds in the future for women's teams. And we're not really talking about sort of your Chelsea's or Man City's here. You know, this applies to championship clubs, for example. £5,000 plus VAT, which is what this panel costs, is that's going to be a, a chunk of your budget that could be used up elsewhere. So it's basically acts to disincentivize people taking risks on sort of younger players who who might potentially be actually um, eligible for a visa. Now, obviously, the whole notion of this is that that encourages clubs to develop English players. Um, and, you know, that's, that's supposedly the big benefit. What's interesting is what's come up is clubs are saying they actually feel that this system is hindering the English talent pathway as much as it is sort of pathways for players from across the world. Why do they say that? I think the feeling from clubs is that at the moment we're still struggling to bring through English players um, at a wide enough level uh, to fill squads in a way that brings up the competitive level. I think the the idea basically is, is that if you play with better players, you will improve. And by limiting the pathway just to English players, that doesn't necessarily in and of itself mean that they're going to immediately become good. Just because you play more football, potentially, doesn't actually mean that you're going to necessarily get better and better. And I think they think feel that by having a more competitive league, competitive squads, that will actually do more for the quality of English players than just by basically having a load of English players. And on top of this, on top of the visa thing, the the FA has homegrown rules as well, which are, is based around you know how long players have been in this country. It's not necessarily specifically related to nationality, because you can, if you've been in England and the WSL, but you're, you're from another country, but for a certain number of years at a certain age, that would qualify for you for that. But there are other things in place that sort of protect um, opportunities for English players in the WSL that sit sort of separate to the granting of visas for players. Okay, so there should be enough protections within the system to allow a certain number of players be in each squad, but at the moment the clubs can't afford to pay the money or uh, go through the appeals process to get the players in. Pretty much. And I think also the the issue that then arises from that as well is some clubs feel like that is impacting the quality of the players that do come to the league in a sort of backwards way because there are certain players who, for example... You might be have played. You might be sort of a 25, 26 year old player. You've got some good minutes for for a top 40 uh, international country, and you play in a league like Spain or Germany. That means you pick up a lot more points, and that player is like probably a good player. But for example, if you look at like someone like Barbara Banda, who's like a standout. Uh, Zambian player who's really impressed at international tournaments because she's really, really good and Zambia as a nation aren't as good. And because she's only played in China before, which doesn't count as one of these leagues, she couldn't come here at all. 
So it almost acts in this backwards way of like, supposedly it means only the very best players come to England to play football. But there are clear examples where that actually isn't happening at all. So what happens in her case in particular then, Jesse? that does, is it essentially if she's this sought after that the club who is willing to pay the £5,000 plus VAT is essentially the leading horse in the race? No, basically for someone like Banda, she just simply wouldn't be able to because she's because she's older. So cause the, the, the process the, wouldn't even work out. It, it doesn't it doesn't apply. And right. there are interesting ways clubs seem to start be starting to come around to this loophole. So, for example, Chelsea signed uh, Japanese wonder kid Micah Hamano last January, and she immediately went out on loan to Hammarby in Sweden. And as far as I'm aware that was motivated by the fact that Chelsea believed, because the youth exceptions panel wasn't in place at that time, Chelsea couldn't appeal, she didn't have the points. Chelsea basically knew she wouldn't get a visa. So they just immediately sent her to Sweden. She picks up the points in Sweden. Japan ended up taking her to the World Cup. Lo and behold, she's now in England and has a visa. But again, that's something that a club like Chelsea has the ability to take a financial risk on. You know, they gave this kid a three, four-year contract and were able to put her up at a great club in Sweden because of, you know, her pedigree and Chelsea's pedigree. That's not something teams at the bottom of the WSL or in the championship are necessarily going to be able to do. Is that not an attitude from Chelsea as well, to a certain extent, Jesse? Because, like, you have quotes from Emma Hayes in your piece where she says teams that are in the WSL, no matter if you are a Chelsea or if you are one of those bottom clubs or even, like, a middle ground sort of club, you should be able to put the money in and develop these things. And I know maybe from her perspective she's had the fortune of working with Chelsea for the last couple of years and they've obviously put like great money into recruitment and trying to find players outside of Europe in terms of like say the likes of Mia Fischel and all those sort of players that they're bringing over but she did also grow that at Chelsea and got them to put the money in early doors yeah it is to that extent it's a little bit of a circular problem because obviously for well I think this is where the difference maybe between the WSL and the championship also comes in, because I do agree. I think generally in the WSL, sometimes when clubs sort of cry about like the financial um, heft of the growing women's game, I kind of, you know, look at these clubs and think, well, half of you are in the top 20 richest clubs in the world because you've got Premier League teams attached to you. So sometimes I think I don't really entirely know what you're you're crying about there. But when you look lower down in the championship and you've got teams that are independent, they simply just don't have that money. Like it, it doesn't exist in the same way for them at all. And I think the flip side is, yes, we can argue that clubs who have um, uh, big men's teams attached to them should be spending more. But at the same time, I think it's important to say that we want the women's game to be able to grow in a way that feels different from the financial heft of the Premier League, that we get a diverse WSL, that we have a diverse women's championship. And I guess systems like this are something that, you know, starts to once again turn the needle more towards being like, well, if you can pay for it, Mm -hmm. you can almost access a different talent and ability and, and get better players in your squad. And if you can't, tough luck. And I know this is kind of more of an abstract point, but is is that your general feeling overall about the WSL and the direction it's going with, with all the, the amazing success it's had on the field, off the field, it is propelling itself towards the situation where the men's game is, where it's a almost a ring-fenced community amongst the, the, the financially elite clubs. Yeah, I think sadly that feels inevitable. And there are complex things there, right? You know, there's it feels 
lots of some people have said in the past there should be, for example, salary caps or, or spending limits, which that's tough to argue for. I think when you you look at sort of average salaries in in the WSL still, you know, probably not going much over the 30, 40,000 mark, just because you've got players who will be earning uh, six figures plus at the very, very top doesn't mean that players at the bottom aren't sort of struggling on, you know, incredibly, incredibly low contracts. And I feel like it's right to say, okay, there still needs to be more money put in. The problem is, is where where do you draw the line? Where, where do you say to these women who, you know, for the vast majority of his career have had no resources? Okay, that's that's too many resources. You shouldn't get to be paid more, blah, blah, blah. When you then look at the men's game and say, well, there is no restriction there. I think that's always going to be the problem with, with finding that balance. I think the hope will be is that clubs continue to sort of innovate and engage in a way that maybe opens up different opportunities for them. You know, I think it's really exciting what Bristol City have been able to do with their supporters in the WSL this year. They are currently joint bottom of the league. They might go down, but they are, you know, a championship team. They're not sort of one of these big Premier League teams, but they've had, you know, sort of an average attendance of, of 10,000 playing at Bristol City men's home stadium, Ashton Gates, which effectively just their, their shared home stadium. Now, that's a massive revenue boost and you know it's an average attendance that really only Arsenal are beating because they pay, play so many of their games at the Emirates um, and I think that's a great example of the way that if clubs are willing to do sort of maybe resource heavy but not necessarily like financially heavy ways of investing in their communities they can bring in more revenue themselves and that might be able to boost them in a league rather than just having a parent club put a load of money into them. You mentioned the Dutch league suddenly going from not last to first, but close enough. Um, sorry to put you on the spot, but what happened there? I've got no, I don't think anyone knows. Um, I don't know whether it's because, you know, Dutch players have come to the league and done well and they felt like that showed it was a good assessment of quality there. I don't know whether they felt like that was a league that was really on the up and they deserved to like be in the top band all of a sudden, but like, um, leagues like Norway, for example, went the other way in that. And there's been a lot of very successful Norwegian players in the league. You know, lots of people would argue that one of the pl- best players of the season, the WSL, Gura Reiten last year, um, she's Norwegian. So unclear. And I think this is part of the problem with the process is that there isn't this clarity between how or what things are going to change. And because women's football is so fast moving, things are changing. And again, this is a this is an issue for clubs because most clubs don't necessarily scout a player over a period of like four weeks, you know, especially younger players, you want to be looking at them over years. But if you're in this sort of shifting sands where suddenly, you know, Norway, a league was in the top band, you're going to get a good number of points goes to two and the number of points you get for them, a player there decreases, a player you could have been looking at for a number of years suddenly can't get a visa anymore. And that creates an issue again in resource investment in scouting. And then Jesse, like when this comes to like you talk there about rankings and the, the league and stuff, like we talk so much about how say FIFA rankings are maybe not the most accurate way of doing things same with the fact that we can't really tell how they're properly ranking the leagues and how applicable it is to what's actually going on in the leagues. Is there a system that you see 
that they could bring in that would maybe do what they want to do in terms of like ranking these con- countries? Or is it just a case of like, as Joe was saying earlier, it's the wrong sort of people that are ranking this. And also it just needs to be people who are like watching a ton of football, which isn't always the easiest thing to do, depending on which league you're trying to watch. Yeah, I think it's important to say there probably is no easy answer to this. And I guess what's frustrating is, you know, we're looking for a football answer to a political issue. And that's tough for a league to to deal with. You know, this is in place because of Brexit. That's nothing to do. We can talk about, you know, homegrown players and how the WSL attracts like the best talent. But really, it's nothing to do with football. Um, And, you know, I mean, it's interesting. It it came up in Karen Carney's review of women's football. And it's something that was suggested that maybe it was just relaxed for a number of years to see what impact that had. Um, It'll be interesting to see whether this is something that the government explores. I do think there's an element of, you know, yeah, the fact that women's football is growing at such a rate and teams are professionalizing and changing and attracting different players. And those younger players are coming through um, with experiences that, you know, like women's footballers have never been able to have before. And consequently, ability, basically, that women's footballers have never been able to have before means that it's particularly hard to do a system like this because you are constantly having to make these little tweaks to it in a way that in men's football stuff sort of ossified a lot more. And just to reiterate the point, this this does happen in the men's game. It's just that the men's clubs appeal and have the cash to be able to to slam things through. Yeah, and the men's clubs are going to have scouting departments that stretch to, you know, tens of people, whereas um, a number of WSL clubs don't have a single full-time scout. So, again, you're a, the men's system allows you to look in a lot broader places, but you're also able to just focus your resources exactly on, okay, who are these players who count? Where where am I looking? You know, are there players who are sort of edge cases who I can get through this appeal system? Because that takes a lot of work and a lot of people. And so the men's men's football is able to work through a complicated system. And, you know, the, the issues that we've talked about can be also applied to the men's system as well. And if, if you're going to sort of take the political view that having visas for international talent coming into the UK is, is ridiculous, you know, regardless of whether we're talking about football or other jobs, you know, there's always going to be that argument, right? Um, But I think particularly the resources that women's football teams have available to them makes this system extra complex. All right, Jesse, you've made a very complicated thing sound quite simple, or at least explained it very well. Anyway, uh, thanks a million for joining us this morning. Cheers. Thank you. Off the ball, breakfast. Ireland's Sports Breakfast Show.